This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Insecurities listeners, those of you who have been with us for a few semesters now know that every summer after those grades have been posted and caps have been tossed in the air at graduation, we here at the podcast like to head back into the classroom for our annual accounting summer school. In years prior, we've talked about the state of the accounting profession with members of the AICPA and major accounting firms. We've done a retrospective on the impact of Sarbanes-Oxley 20 years on, and we've interviewed accounting heavyweights in the SEC enforcement space. All of those topics and subjects have been at the forefront of discussions in the accounting world over these past three years. But for this summer session, we'd like to reach back into the basics and provide a remedial session for those accounting novices listening out there. Some of you might think, who cares? It's just numbers. Every company touts their results. Or so much of what is publicly available about a business comes from other sources, not financial reports. And maybe what's the big deal about if something is material or not? Well, we're kicking off this accounting summer school remedial semester by going back to the start to talk about the fundamental principles of accounting today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It is good to be with you, Chris. Was I supposed to answer yes to most of those questions in the intro? <laughs> How do you think about financial reporting, Kurt? Maybe, yeah. maybe you're the prime target of our remedial accounting yeah, summer I, school I class think I today. Am. <laughs> I don't know, Kurt, have you ever spent any time in a remedial class along the way? Are you similar to, wasn't it Einstein that failed his uh, his intro math classes? No, I spent a summer taking fly fishing and I you know, spent a, a summer <laughs> studying abroad, which was also very rigorous, but I wouldn't say remedial. <laughs> I was going to say more about being abroad than studying, maybe. Back when I was in college, I had a business law professor who was very much a, of an old school mentality. And there was one exam a midterm I did not study for very well that received a less than adequate grade. We'll put it that way. As you all know, I did end up getting a degree in the end. But I will always remember <laughs> Professor Don Swan's writing on the top of my exam, the phrase, get it in gear, and underlined everything <laughs> after I'd had a less than important performance there. So Professor Swans, I know you probably aren't listening out there, but you're always in the back of my mind when we're thinking about being remedial or rising to the challenge. And today we're gonna talk a little bit about some of those underpinning ideas in the accounting world. We like to call them principles of accounting, Kurt, in that kind of school mentality. It's important to know the difference between a principle, P-A-L, and a principle that ends in L.A. <laughs> oh, no. That is a terrible joke, but I love it. <laughs> okay, so let's just take a step back here, right? I mean, we've talked in the past. I have some general familiarity with generally accepted accounting principles here in the U.S. anyway. Is that the kind of thing we're going to be talking about today? 
Kind of. GAAP, or Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, that's capitals across the way with two A's. That's our, how we colloquially reference the set of standards that all issuers and many other businesses, which we've talked about at length on other episodes, uh, that's the framework that they are required to follow when reporting their financial information. And GAAP is not some simple 10-step rule for financial reporting, Kurt. It's a little bit more complex than that. I've gotten that impression over the years here on the podcast. <laughs> so many of our accounting-focused listeners out there might be familiar with what's called the GAP hierarchy or the, quote, House of GAP, which is the framework on which authoritative accounting guidance is structured. In the simplest of terms, and I will preface most of today's episode with this is not actual accounting or legal advice. Uh, we are speaking generally here about these principles, but in the simplest of terms, there are different statements and interpretation by different regulatory bodies that hold a different weight of authority when it comes to how accounting treatment should be chosen. I'm a little lost already, but I assume you're going to get me up to speed. Let's talk about how to weight these things. That's right, Kurt. It's a difficult topic and it's always changing. For example, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, promulgates standards for the profession, issues what's called technical bulletins, and also shares positions through its Emerging Issues Task Force and publishes implementation guides. Each of those efforts holds a different level of authoritativeness or weight in the GAAP hierarchy. All right. So if I'm sort of assuming you did this in the right order and this isn't a sort of a trick question, mm -hmm. it sounds like the FASB standards are the most authoritative. They're at the top of the house of GAP mm -hmm. and the implement the implementation guides are somewhere at the bottom. That's right. That's generally correct. And there's also a few other ways to make this more complex, Kurt, when we start to layer in Great. SEC interpretive releases and AICPA industry-focused audit and accounting guides. It's important to know when you're considering the accounting treatment for any situation or circumstance where you can find authoritative guidance in that gap hierarchy and how that's going to dictate the appropriate procedure going forward. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I from time to time we'll have an accounting or an audit case. And so I know about the memos that in-house financial reporting professionals and external auditors write and rely on. They can often be important to the facts of a case. That's right. The research and the thought, the contemporaneous ideas that underpin those memos to file regarding the understanding and application of accounting treatments can dictate whether or not the financial reporting team itself appropriately followed GAAP. Absolutely. Okay, so I feel like we're biting off a lot. We're going to talk about all of all of GAP today. Is that right? <laughs> How long is this going to be? I mean, do we need to tell the listeners to buckle up? I was going to say you don't have to buckle up too much, but uh, you know, we want to. We're not going to be able to talk about GAP in its entirety. Probably, Kurt. If we went back and redid all 100 episodes, we'd probably still end up a few episodes short to cover all of GAP. <laughs> but I, what I want to talk about are a couple of those foundational principles that underlie standardized accounting frameworks like GAP. Those objectives that the framework seeks to achieve. All right, so you're my guide today. Where That's should we it. get started? We're going to start with talking about two of the main principles of accounting, the matching principle and the principle of conservatism. And spoiler alert, Kurt, they shouldn't be considered independent of each other, along with any other principle, as you see many of them work together to provide meaningful financial information to users and companies alike. All right, let's get into it. All right, Kurt, the matching principle is pretty straightforward, but it can be seen in some of the most complex and nuanced parts of the accounting world. The matching principle is just that, a match. 
and attempt to align expenses incurred or paid with the associated revenues for which those expenses were incurred or paid. So, Kurt, let's go back to that tried and true accounting school example, a widget factory. Let's assume that the Wolf Widget Factory is out there operating, uh, you know, with reckless abandon. And the factory itself, you know, you buy materials on January 1st that can make 100 widgets. You produce 100 widgets by January 15th. And then the last 16 days of the month before January 31st, you sell 100 widgets. You'd be recording the expenses of the making of those 100 widgets you sold in January as relating to the revenue that you recognized for the sale of those widgets in January, right? We're all within the same month. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, we use widget factories in law school too. So I'm so far, <laughs> I can follow. Expenses match the costs. That's or no, right. Expenses match the revenue. Revenues. Got it. Bingo. It's a simple example. And you'll note in that uh, real short, real short hypothetical, we only discuss what's called a product cost associated with widget making, raw materials that are used to make those widgets. But there are a lot of other costs that might be considered, such as the wages that you pay to the factory workers or the expense of running the equipment you use or even the mortgage on the factory itself. What about the expenses paid not directly involved with the production of a widget, like advertising for your widgets on Instagram. I haven't seen any Wolf Widget Factory ads yet, Kurt, but I'll, now that I've said it out loud, maybe my phone will track that. Other costs like uh, paying your widget general counsel to maintain compliance and legal standards. The matching principle dictates that product costs, like we talked about those inputs, should be carried with associated revenues, but other costs known as period costs should be expensed regardless of when revenue is recognized. So just to break that down a little bit further, if you bought raw widget materials to make 100 widgets in January, but you didn't sell them until widget prime day in March, you'd be carrying the product costs associated with those widgets as inventory until the revenue is recognized, showing as inventory assets in the January and February financials. So those product costs become assets on the balance sheet under inventory until you end up selling them. Your general counsel's salary, however, is not a direct cost associated with widgets, so every month you would expense those, I'm sure, astronomical checks to the widget factory general counsel, regardless of if you sold 100 widgets in a month or zero. Okay, making sense so far. This is actually ringing a few bells from past episodes where we've talked about revenue recognition cases. I think maybe we're heading in that direction, you but I mean, generally, it's feeling to me like this whole matching principle isn't as easy as it was in my Jan 1 through Jan 31 example. <laughs> oh, that's right. So uh, how does that matching principle come to light when we look at it through our insecurities lens, Kurt? I want to talk about an example of when something goes wrong with the matching principle. And we're going to reference a case here from 2016. In 2016, the SEC announced a settlement with Monsanto Company, the multinational agribusiness in which Monsanto agreed to pay $80 million and retain an independent compliance consultant to settle charges that had violated accounting rules and misstated company earnings regarding its flagship Roundup product. According to the order, Monsanto encouraged retailers to maximize their purchases of Roundup in the fourth quarter of 2009 to qualify in a new rebate program for their future purchases in 2010. As we briefly talked about before, the cost of sales is important to those earnings numbers, and rebates should be counted as one of those costs. Now, in this case, Monsanto ended up delaying the recognition of those rebate programs into 2010, into the year following, and... Mm -hmm. 
as the SEC noted in their order, that followed on into the 2010 and 2011 timeframe. So at this time in 2009, the inappropriate accounting treatment led to an overstated revenue and gross profit number by more than $44 million, and in 2010 of more than $48 million. At the time, then-SEC Chair Mary Jo White stated, quote, Financial reporting and disclosure cases continue to be a high priority for the commission, and these charges show that corporations must be truthful in their earnings releases to investors and have sufficient internal accounting controls in place to prevent misleading statements. This type of conduct, which fails to recognize expenses associated with rebates for a flagship product in the period in which they occurred, is the latest from a well-worn playbook of accounting misstatements. End quote. So obviously, I definitely agree with Chair Mary Jo White at the time. But you can see, Kurt, that if you're going to sell 100 widgets, but you're offering rebates for five of those Mm -hmm. widgets or for the value of 5% of your sales, then the actual number that you should record is probably more like 95 than 100 if you're selling widgets for a dollar. In this case, Monsanto was offering significant rebates, which it would have to utilize as a cost of sales in future periods on sales in the current period. And the appropriate accounting treatment under the matching principle would have been to align those costs with the sales that occurred related to those costs in December in the fourth quarter of 2009, instead of delaying them into 2010. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, on some level, I wish that we had a virtual whiteboard here because I think some of these might be easier (laughs) if you could kind of jot the numbers down and show the lines Mm. for how they connect. But I mean, part of what I'm taking from this is you got to be very careful about when you record the revenue for the widgets Mm -hmm. that relate to, you know, the materials or the costs or the expenses that you otherwise have on the books. Yeah. And it's one of those ideas where we can create these kind of neat and simple scenarios that it's very clear cut whether or not something should be recorded in period one or period two. But the real questions about the matching principle come to play in some of the more complex ideas when we're spending now to to sell later. You know, what if you're a pharmaceutical company that has spent 10 years paying scientists and incurring lab fees to research a cancer drug that's about to go to market? What if you're Mm -hmm. hiring engineers to work on code for a new software solution, maybe for an issue that hasn't even become popular in the market yet? You know, what if you're spending millions of dollars to test equipment in outer space for future scientific research? It's hard to align expenses to a certain degree with revenues when those revenues are hard to forecast, maybe not regularly occurring or changing in a constant environment. Yeah, I mean, as we're talking through this, it's definitely tripping some things in my mind Mm -hmm. where I think about like what happens when you make a down payment for a product, right? You kind of have payments split in half or what if there are returns of a product, right? Of course, if we go way back in time with like the old set top boxes that were sitting in warehouses, you know, that were, that were paid for in theory, right? There's lots of different ways, I suppose, to think about when or whether it's appropriate to record revenue for the sale of some particular goods. And I can use an example, too. I was on a civil litigation matter that spanned, and this probably won't shock you, Kurt, or most of our listeners, that spanned over 13 years from when the original original issue Pretty was standard. filed and when the, exactly, I didn't mean regular law, yeah. legal speed there, where the issue was around who was going to end up paying for the development costs of a specific aerospace technology. And without getting into too much detail, you know, one of the businesses involved here had created a site for, you know, specific aerospace launching services. And the costs of that were related to what they expected their counterparty to deliver in terms of those orders for those services being provided. And the issue was around whether those costs were appropriately accounted for under GAAP 
as startup costs or if they were actual expenses at a future to you know make future mm-hmm. revenue along those lines. And like I said, 13 years, a lot of expert depositions and testimony around accounting treatment that related to that specific, what boils down basically to the matching principle, right? Where are we accounting for expenses yeah. in the same period as which revenue is recognized or are we in a different scenario here? So if anyone wants to hear a much more boring episode about SOP 811, I'm happy to share a lot more detail <laughs> on that, Kurt, but we'll save that for maybe our remedial summer school, uh, you know, a couple of years from now. I knew we wouldn't get through it without at least one acronym. So there it is. <laughs> if you want to Don't ask read me where in the gap hierarchy uh, uh, SOP falls either, because okay. that's uh, a much better one. So, and listen, all of our listeners out there, if you haven't dealt directly with the matching principle or an accounting case in detail, you can think about some of those ideas and the clients you work with and the services you provide too, as we want to be sure that we're aligning the costs being spent with the money that's coming in to best reflect when those the period of appropriate recording are occurring. So that, especially in the case that we discussed with Monsanto, you're not creating the avenue for increased revenue now and more expenses later when those expenses actually relate to that revenue being recognized now. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna give you two thumbs up so far. Uh, that's the matching principle. I think you broke it down in, in just a few minutes. Of course, it could be an hour. It could probably be much more than that. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't have to be 13 years. But I know we want to talk about at least one other principle today. And so I think part two of this episode has to do with something called conservatism. You I, mentioned up top, which, I, frankly, I assume when you sit down in your chair, you put on your glasses every morning, you just go right into, you know, conservative, you know, accounting mode. But like, tell me what I'm missing <laughs> That's here. Right. It's not just some slight, Kurt, against us bean counting accountants over here about how frugal <laughs> we might be. Uh, conservatism really has to do with the posture and the motivation for specific accounting treatments and methods. And in actuality, many accounting theory focused people don't refer to conservatism as a principle in itself, but as a constraint on the presentation of financial information. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But similar to the matching principle, conservatism is a relatively straightforward idea. In all cases, when an accountant is presented with multiple methods of accounting treatment for a specific element of the financial statements, the accountant should always choose the method that is least likely to overstate assets or income. It's that simple. So that's a pretty simple, as you say, or maybe one-sided rule, right? I mean, what are accountants supposed to do? Are they supposed to ensure that they don't understate assets or income or overstate the liabilities or expenses? How do we apply this sort of one-step rule? That's right. Funny you should bring that up, Kurt. Conservatism in its purest sense focuses on constraining those elements of the financial statements viewed with positive correlation to performance. So overstating assets or overstating income is generally seen as a better financial position than any alternative, as you mentioned, understating those two or even overstating liabilities and expenses. Now, obviously, no accountant should go out manipulating any element of the financial statements outside of the parameters of GAAP. But the idea of conservatism stems from the essence of an accountant's role in providing reliable and relevant financial information to the users of financial statements. So, Chris, what is a good theoretical example of conservatism? All right, Kurt, the Wolf Widget Factory has done so well. You've sold it at a massive profit, and you've decided to buy a mining quarry, which digs beautiful granite slabs out of the ground to sell to your home remodeling buddies uh, to redo, say, kitchen counters. And as you extract these stones from the ground, you store them in your warehouse until you can sell them during the next home remodel craze. And in terms of assets, your granite inventory is one of the most valuable and important assets on your books. 
Now, there are a variety of methods for inventory accounting that are acceptable under GAAP based on both industry practice and specific circumstance. You may have heard of some of our favorite acronyms, FIFO and LIFO, as well as the weighted average method or specific identification, and each of those has its own use case. But we're going to break this example down a little bit further. Let's imagine your warehouse only has one loading dock. So when you go and get that first beautiful slab of granite, you're going to drive that in with a forklift and you're going to put it all the way in the back left corner of the warehouse. You're going to drive that forklift out and close the door. That second slab you put in will then also drive all the way back to the left of the warehouse and go on top of that first slab. After filling up that first row against the back wall, you'll then fill up that next row against the back wall, each of them getting progressively closer to that one entry and exit point. So... When the Property Brothers, Kurt, call you and ask for three slabs of granite for their next HGTV project, you know, how are we going to get those? You're going to open the door to your loading dock. You're going to grab three of the slabs that are closest to the door since you can't get into the slabs behind it, right? They're stacked up behind those other giant, beautiful rows of granite. In this circumstance, you'd be selling the Property Brothers the most recent pieces of granite you mined or the last in as the first ones you sell when you're approached by the brothers or the first out. Hence, LIFO, last in, first out, might be the best method of accounting for that inventory. I, I like where you're going with this, but if I'm being honest, this doesn't seem like an accounting principle. This seems just like I, like physics. That's I don't know. Right. It just It is what it is. <laughs> That's right. It's a simple example, but let's add on a layer regarding the price of granite or the price of extracting that granite. Take for example, I don't know, a global pandemic event that encourages everyone to reevaluate their personal living spaces. Uh, in that case, the price of granite and the services to mine that granite may steadily rise over the course of many years. Now, as you and the property bros are slinging granite left and right, you'll notice that you are keeping up with demand to a reasonable degree. But what's happening in that warehouse? You may experience that as soon as a new slab is loaded in for storage, the property brothers call you and it is moved right out again. In fact, the slabs all the way at the back of the warehouse may be untouched for months, if not years, and continue to age and degrade over time. In this situation, the value of your inventory under a LIFO method during a period of those rising prices will increase the cost of goods sold, that is the cost to get the most recent slab into the warehouse is much higher than that of the slab you got years and years ago, and that increased cost of goods sold will decrease operating earnings in the period for which that slab is sold. Hold on. It feels a little bit like you are matching, you know, the revenue with the cost of, of obtaining the granite. So are we mixing up our principles here? Kurt, you may be working your way out of remedial summer school here in accounting because you're right. <laughs> we can share more on those specific inventory methods in another episode, but you can see the choice of accounting method matters when it comes to reporting those financial results. Let's imagine in the same operation, same warehouse, same in and out with the loading dock, you're using a FIFO method, first in, first out, meaning that the first slab you sell is the first slab you mined, that one all the way in the back left corner. In an environment of rising prices, you'd be recording a lower cost of goods sold. That slab was cheaper a few years ago to get out of the ground than it is now. And that will increase your operating income for the same good, the same granite slabs in the same price environment. Okay. I think I get it. And it's sort of making sense. So the principle of conservatism would dictate that a business needs to choose the accounting method that is least likely to result in the business overstating assets or income. And in your example, if the warehouse, like in my warehouse, mm -hmm. only has one loading dock, it would be pretty hard to justify first in, first out. 
it'd be really hard to get back to that granite slab. Right. Yeah. It's always an interesting discussion when we go on site or work with any of these kind of large manufacturers or others, you know, that really have physical inventory, right? It's such an interesting part of the accounting world. I was on a matter that involved a, and I'm going to say this phrase out loud, Kurt, you can laugh if you want, that involved the manufacturer of pool noodles. Yes, that summer hit <laughs> foam noodles and the way that they had structured their entire operation in this massive tens of thousands of square foot warehouse was on a moving, you know, kind of linear progression from when the inputs came into the warehouse to when the foam noodles were packaged and shipped on the way out. And so you could track first in, first out methodology from as that first noodle came off the line, it was the first one going to QC, it was the first one going into packaging, and that box was the first one to go out the door. <laughs> Is this why we had a summer of only blue pool noodles? I don't believe I can comment exactly on how that happened, Kurt, but maybe that's the case. So it's always fun to talk about those examples, especially when we have physical inventory to talk about. And again, putting an insecurities lens on kind of the idea of conservatism, right? Is what we're talking about here. In action back in 2016, the SEC charged and settled really talks about that conservatism idea. In 2016, the SEC charged and settled allegations of accounting issues with Lime Energy Company, an energy services provider, regarding their accounting for revenues in the period of 2010 through 2012. Lime's fastest growing business unit at the time in the utilities segment involved arrangements in which the percentage of completion method was utilized to recognize revenue in small projects for large utilities companies. Therefore, with percentage of completion, as Lime recorded additional expenses incurred on a project, they would recognize associated revenue for that expense. So, for example, Kurt, if you think that a project is going to cost 100 bucks to get done, and that in your overall price for that project is 150 bucks, you know, as soon as you spend $50 of that 100, you're 50% of the way there, you might recognize $75 of revenue, 50% of your overall price. So as the expenses incurred increase, so too does the revenue associated with that project. In 2010, Lime began taking a more aggressive approach in terms of their revenue recognition. The standard procedure to recognize revenue was to support any journal entries for those individual projects with documentation regarding the associated expenses incurred. In December of 2009, Lime realized it would miss revenue targets in the utilities business, but that it had expenses that it had incurred in December that it had just not yet taken in the support for those journal entries. Nevertheless, Lime accounting staff recognized those costs incurred, but not yet supported as revenue in that year, and that thereby increased their ability to recognize those amounts in that period. This inappropriate revenue recognition evolved in future periods, not just to record costs prior to receiving a report, but also to begin reopening closed book periods to add back revenue recognized in later periods, as well as creating fictitious costs for projects that didn't exist, all to inflate revenues to meet expectations targets. So those second two examples are not a conservatism issue. Mm -hmm. They are much more kind of high-line accounting uh, violations. But that conservatism idea, Kurt, you can see the difference between you know, knowing the costs have been spent and being able to support the entries and when revenue should yeah. be recognized. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I think it, it sounds a little bit like like mark-to-market kind of a, accounting, right? So I think businesses that are subject to mark-to-market have to write down assets if the price of those assets or the going rate for those assets goes down or, or moves lower. But at the same time, and maybe this is the conservatism piece, but they're not allowed to write assets up if the price starts jumping back up, 
And maybe that's the easiest example of where conservatism's at play, especially in the financial services and insurance industries of the day. If you are looking at a group of assets that you believe have been impaired or need to be written down to reflect their current value in the market, those are tough decisions that businesses and accountants are making on a quarterly, if not more regular basis. Hmm. Everyone would love if they could mark up those assets as well, but conservatism really dictates that recognizing that change in value over time uh, from a positive perspective, can lead to inflated results if it's just a short-term issue, uh, or even some implications around recognition of income and tax purposes if you have these gains uh, that are on paper, not changing the assets in your inventory or on your books, but are just changing the value there as well. So again, that's a much more detailed episode on mark-to-market, but really a great demonstration of conservatism. And maybe, Kurt, you know, you're proving your acknowledgement of maybe being an accountant at heart, even though you just play an attorney <laughs> here on the podcast. Well, I think we're going to have to come back and do another one of these episodes. You know, we're two principles in. Mm -hmm. I think I've got my head around those two, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah, and we're excited. If our listeners out there are interested in us to discuss any cases related to some of these accounting principles or just some of the other facts and circumstances of that foundation of the gap hierarchy in general, you know, guys, that I'm chomping at the bit to do that. Kurt usually constrains me a bit, much like conservatism, that we focus more on the legal side. But if you guys have other topics or thoughts you'd like to cover on some of our remedial accounting summer school episodes this summer, let us know. Yeah. And also, you know, we've talked for a long time about how we're working on a movie script that has to do with goodwill accounting. <laughs> if we want to, you know, take maybe a, a mafia approach to this and have the House of Gap feature prominently mm. in, you know, goodwill accounting the movie, let us know how you think that would play in. That would be great. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Class is dismissed. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.